0: Welcome to Life of the School, episode 24. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton Boxborough Regional High School. Each episode on life of the school, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how did they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Carrie Chartier. Carrie is a biology and anatomy and physiology teacher at Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Carrie has used her background in exercise physiology to build a human performance lab at the high school to support her instructional goals. The human performance lab was built after Carrie was awarded the 2015 Toshiba America Foundation Education Grant in the human performance lab students in biology classes and student athletes are able to collect data on their physical performance her work in the human performance lab also earned her recognition as a finalist for the 2017 hall at patriots place stem teacher of the year welcome carrie hi erin thank you for having me so welcome back um <laughs> we, <laughs> we, we we tried to do this a couple days ago it, it didn't so much work, so uh, so I think we, we got it down. We're going to totally nail it this time.
1: It's going to be great.
0: So great. So um, let's just jump right into it, and I'm going to ask you a question I like to ask everyone uh, when we get started, which is, how did you become a science teacher? What led you into the classroom?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I do have a little bit of a convoluted path. Um, I was a career changer. I started teaching uh, right around the age of 30. Um, Prior to that, um, I did some clinical exercise, physiology. Um, I worked in a a few different situations there. Um, Also worked as a wellness um, coordinator for a fitness uh, resort in Arizona called Canyon Ranch, which um, some people may have heard of. It's kind of known as the fitness resort for the rich and famous. So that was a definitely cool experience. Um, And I sort of found that for me, through, through the pathway of, of being in some different experiences, um, that one of the things that I loved about everything that I was doing was the education piece. Um, when I was working clinically, I was working with people that had chronic pain and I found that to be challenging and I, I sort of questioned whether or not that would be something I would be able to do for, for a lifetime. Um, I, you know, I, I sort of take on the energy of my environment and working with chronic pain patients, uh, I found to be quite difficult. Um, So I kind of did a a little soul searching at that time. I was out West. I'm a native New Englander, born and raised in Vermont and was spent some time out West. And it sort of seemed like it was the right time to make a move back to the East Coast. Um, I decided to, to get another master's in education and, 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 So here I am. I I did that. I went to school, um, ended up doing my um, practicum or internship um, at Acton-Boxborough, and that's kind of where I've been the remaining time.
0: Yeah, this is something that is interesting about you, and I think it's something that um, it's easy to forget, especially now having taught so long, that you went down a career path, got a master's, worked in your field— and then changed paths later, which is right. quite remarkable. I mean, I think uh, I, you know, it's, it's that time of year where, you know, we're a couple of days away from graduation and our kids are, you know, all totally set on their future. Um, and it's like, Oh, I got to go to this school so I can get to this job or go to this place to go to that. And, um, I don't know. I've, when I, when I, I forgot about that as much as, as long as we've known each other. And as much as I know right. that that was the way it was, I think it's, um, it's a great story to hear because, uh, I think that, that reflection and evaluation about what path am I on and, when's the right time to, to, to reevaluate um, is is something we don't talk about much, particularly with kids.
1: Yeah, you know, it's really interesting you say that because I, I sort of feel like for me, I came in already a better educator because of that experience. Um, I don't know about, about you or, or other people that might be hearing this, but for me, the, my 20s were definitely not something that you could pay me to go back to. Um, although it was fun and exciting to be out and about and exploring you know, um, out West, I felt a little lost at times. And I think that, um, for me, you know, I, I, I loved school when I was in high school. I think I was a good student. I loved college. I was a good student. Graduate school was exciting. I was still a good student. Mm -hmm. Um, but you just, you never, you know, you think you want one thing and then you try to follow that path and some doors are open and some doors are closed. And I think for me, it, it, it was a lot of sort of finding the path of least resistance Um, you know it's I kind of sometimes say to my students when we talk about you don't have to know what you're going to be 20 years from now you just need to know kind of what you want to do tomorrow Mm -hmm. and you know there's something about hitting your head against a locked door you know you want to try to get through but if you hit your head too many times you're going to end up with a concussion (laughs) so you might want to look for one that's not locked and I think my path is sort of like that Um, Sort of pushing through and trying to find open doors, some of those doors seem shut to me. But the open ones, I think, were, were, um, you know, when I followed that path, ended, I ended up in a place where I feel really comfortable and where I still feel um, that my job is exciting and I have a lot to learn. And I think that's a really good lesson for kids. And so that is something that I'm able to share
0: with them. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing that you brought up is sort of how you you did your practicum and uh, your practicum was definitely a little bit different than sort of your standard practicum. And that was very fortunate, I think, for both you and the school um, because of circumstances in your first year.
1: <laughs> hey, well, so um, when I did my my M.A.T., I did it at Simmons, which at the time was um, a fairly unique program. I don't think I'm not sure if they still do this program now. I know things have changed quite a bit in the educational landscape for for um, you know, teacher education. But at the time you had the option to do a full year internship rather than just a 12 re- week practicum teaching experience. So I was at the school on the first day of school and I was there at the last day of school. And so that's sort of the, the trajectory with that, which I think was a little bit unique. Um, but halfway through my internship year, my cooperating teacher's husband got a job offer in North Carolina, which she which she, he accepted and they ended up leaving. Um, and then I was hired as a long-term sub. So I went in thinking I was going to be mentored for the entire experience and then ended up halfway through owning a full load of, of classes and um, needing to sort of be responsible for all of that. Um, so that was definitely interesting, although I do feel that I was ready for that challenge when it happened. And also the paycheck that was super helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I really needed that at that time, so yeah. that was good.
0: Yeah, and it clearly is. Uh, well, we're. I think time will tell, but I think it may have worked out. So um. I think.
1: Yeah, I, I would say <laughs> I'm hoping by now we know it was successful. Yeah, yeah,
0: only 18 years later here. Right. Okay, um, so um, as I mentioned in the intro, um, sort of one of your. Uh, of noteworthy accomplishments the last couple of years has been the, the human performance lab that you've, you've built at AB. So I'd like to hear a little bit about sort of the, the genesis of the human performance lab, It obviously has some backing to your, um, your pre-teaching days um, and sort of what led to this uh, passion project.
1: Okay. That, that's a great question. So um, as an exercise physiologist, you, you know, first um, going into teaching, I knew that I wanted to pull that experience into the classroom. And fortunately, my cooperating teacher back in, you know, when I was doing my internship taught the anatomy and physiology at Acton Boxborough. So that was a natural thing for me to continue on once she left. And then I was hired the following year. So the exercise physiology physiology, um, background lends itself very well to the anatomy and physiology elective class. Um, So I sort of think of I think this may even be your term that anatomy and physiology is kind of my playground. Right. So um, it's a place where I can try some things. I'm the only teacher in there. Um, You know, it's juniors and seniors. So we can have the opportunity to um, explore a little bit and experiment in in ways um, pretty um, low risk ways to do that. Um, But as far as the human performance lab project, that, that was something that I had wanted to do. Um, really ever since I started teaching and then, um, as you know, you know, your first few years of teaching, you realize, wow, teaching is way harder than you (laughs) ever thought it would be. And so there's that learning curve and then, um, finishing up, you know, the schooling, there's always, you know, more professional development you need to do. And then, um, life kind of happens. And before you know it, you're 15 years in and you still haven't done your original goal. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I was talking with a colleague who you know well, because it's you, um, <laughs> about, about this project. And I think if, if I can sort of um, paraphrase what you said to me, are you gonna write that grant for that project or not? Um, and so at that time, I think it was a good sort of kick in the butt, if you will, um, to, to try to see if I could get some funding to, to get the equipment to build this lab. Um, and I think we had known about the Toshiba grant I think it was previously Toyota or some mm-hmm. other.
0: Yeah, it used to be Toyota Tapestry.
1: And um, so you and another colleague had um, you know, known about that. So I um, paired up with the department chair in the physical education department, and we decided to do a cross-disciplinary um, project um, because we felt that Human Performance Lab would be something that would be great for health classes and physical education classes too. So... We wrote this grant over the summer. Oh, and you know, luck would have it. We were awarded the the um, the grant and we were able to purchase quite a bit of equipment. Um, I think the 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 main focal point um, for the science piece of equipment is the metabolic cart. Um, mm-hmm. It's a gas analyzer equipment that allows us to do direct measures of. Volume of oxygen consumed or VO2. Um, It also measures heart rate and um, you can also look at it and it will let you know when your lactic acid threshold is reached. Um, You can do this at rest, during exercise, during a lot of different types of exercise. You might do a graded exercise test up to max. You might do a steady state test where you increase your intensity um, to a certain point and then stay steady for the remainder. You can do this on the treadmill or a bicycle ergometer, which we also were able to purchase with the funds. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also have a set of polar heart rate monitors um, that, and we have sensors for both physical education and for science. Um, and along with that, we have the polar GoFit software, which allows us to use the heart rate monitors uh, in science class. I think the way that we've used them best is to Um, have the heart rates projected on the screen so you can have all of your students with heart rate monitors doing um, exercise tests in the laboratory and all of their heart rates are projected so you can see sort of in real time how that works and then in PE they're able to use these as a measure of their aerobic um, fitness and for how long they stay in their aerobic zone um, and the, the goal being that if things work well, they can use that as a method of assessment that kids have spent X number of minutes in their target zones for the week. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can, you know, add those up week after week. So that would be something that, um, I think would be really useful tool for physical education teachers.
0: For me, this is a, uh, you know, I'm a day away or two days away from collecting CERs for my students who did. Uh, their lab. This is the first year that we've brought classes into there, into the into the human formers lab. And so, in the past, what we would do is we would have done activities where students would see if different things could affect heart rate, and then they would like check their pulse afterwards. So they were never able to con- connect and do continuous data collection like they can now. Um, and so, the the types of of measures that they can do now is quite different, but it also brought up this really interesting thing where I had these uh, very robust discussions about types of data, uh, discrete data versus continuous data, and wow. I was able to use that performance, and um, it's it's definitely opened up questions. And uh, today it was funny because I was doing uh, my immune system um, uh, discussion with my kids, and I put up the graph which shows you know first exposure, second exposure. Uh, to a pathogen and immune response, and I said, "Hey, I wonder what kind of data is this? This is a line." And my fourth period class, I said, if this, what kind of data is this?" They all were like, "Oh, that's continuous data." And I, and I was like, "Oh, that lab nailed that down." And you know, wasn't a, it has happened? Yeah, it wasn't a listed course, but I will tell you that from the past, uh, you know, having brought that up, I definitely feel like it was a it was a stronger note we hit this year, um, in part because uh, of that data and being able to really have them use their own bodies to collect that right. data.
1: <clears throat> Right. And I think for me, like, that's one of the things that I come back to a lot with teaching science um, is that and I've taught like you have all levels of science. So some of the kids that um, I've had that I think have more learning challenges and and tend to be kids that struggle a bit more. You want to engage them um, in science and other STEM related Um, disciplines and you know and you don't want to turn them off and I think one way that we can really get them to engage is if they can study their own body you know it it's it's very real world application for them and um, with the human performance lab I know that we've brought our all of our biology students in there um, all levels have been able to access it and I think that's one of um, the the real pluses with this equipment is that every kid can access it. And I know some of the things that we do that are really cool in science are really only available to the, is that your
0: dog or my dog? That's my dog.
1: (laughs) (laughs) My dog is sitting right here too.
0: Um,
1: (laughs) But I think that, um, you know, when only the AP level can access the school stuff, that, you know, I mean, that's okay, but we want to be able to provide experiences to all of our science students. And I feel like this, equipment maybe filled a gap in that way that we didn't have in our school.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I still want to make it so that every kid is doing uh, a gel that they understand with DNA, but you know, we'll, we'll get there.
1: Those are, those are excellent goals to have Mr. Matthew.
0: <laughs> well, so, soon, someday we'll get there. We'll get, I'm right. telling you someday we're going to get there. Every kid right. in our school running a gel with actual DNA in it. Um, uh, someday, uh, well, but yeah, I might just need to get myself a big, t- giant grant uh, to figure yeah. out a way of doing that. Uh, but there, so. more money. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one of the uh, one of the other nice things that came out of this human performance lab is that. Um, uh, some uh, angel came out and uh, nominated you um, as a the uh, <laughs> hall at Patriot Place uh, STEM teacher of the year, and so um, this is a, this is a an interesting award. Um, I had uh, Dave Mangus last year's winner on uh, earlier this year. Um, I interviewed him and um, and. I I remember talking to him about the experience, but I'm curious for you. uh, I mean, Dave is, Dave Mangus is one of those guys who like, he, you know, he's on the governor's council for teaching. He's like, he's invited (laughs) to like every dinner that involves science and teaching and education, you know, in New England. Uh, But I know for you, you often sort of, you know, downplay your role as a teacher. And so this was a very different experience for you. So I was curious, what, what did that feel like? What was that experience like for you?
1: Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because, um, you know i think people go into teaching for different reasons and i think people are driven to make the choices they make for different reasons and for me it was always about the kids and i've always sort of joked around i could teach anything i could teach pe or i could teach basket weaving or biology i don't care as long as the kids are there um and the relationships that i make with kids i think are the most important um and so I've always sort of focused on that uh and so this project you know the human performance lab project was such a passion for me um and I think when kids see teachers passionate about something they can't help but get engaged and so it was really surprising for me when I was nominated I actually thought you nominated me but you said you didn't so I don't know who that was um But I thought, wow, okay, that's cool. I filled out the application and then forgot about it. And then when I received the phone call that I was actually chosen as a finalist, I was pretty shocked because I didn't really think, um, you know, that I had done enough to to warrant that. Um, But of course, I was so excited about that. And then when I went into Gillette, to have the interview, I was really excited at the opportunity to just talk about the cool things that my kids are doing and that the kids at our school are doing. And it was this really neat experience to go in and sit around this like corporate (laughs) conference table in Gillette Stadium, like by itself, like that was just neat. Um, And then to have these really great questions um, posed that had, where I had the opportunity to really reflect and share, you know, what the kids are doing and how STEM is important to me as an educator and, and to us as a school. And it was really rewarding just to be able to talk about it. And, and I left there feeling like, um, feeling really good about the work that, that I do and the work that we do, but more importantly, the work that the kids do it. Mm-hmm. it um, and so, and I, 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 I was disappointed that I didn't win because I, I do like to win, um, but <laughs> as you do too. But um, but it, I was really proud of the work that I that I had done and um, and and the opportunity to share what the kids are doing with these people. And I think it was just very validating because um, you know I don't know that I necessarily downplay what I do. But, um, you know, I'm driven as an educator in such a different way, I think, than some other people that it's it was never a goal of mine to be teacher of the year, which I know for some teachers, that really is. And that's OK. You know, whatever motivates us is, is what makes us better in the classroom. You know, it all comes back to what what what's best for the kids. Um, but I think for me, at, you know, sort of mid-career, um, it was a little power boost. You know, yeah. it was it. it it was um, something that I'm definitely really proud of. And, um, you know, I was able to, to chat with them about, um, like say the, the revolution, you know, they train with heart rate monitors and they probably have an exercise physiologist that does that with them. And I was able to talk about, well, we're doing that with our soccer team next year with our heart rate monitors. And it was just a really neat exchange to be able to bring that back to my students and say what we're doing for the soccer team with my exercise science club is what the revs are doing just on a smaller scale. And so again, those real world connections, um, that I can make, make with kids is just really cool. So it was a really fun experience, um, and an honor just to be nominated. <laughs> Very Oscar like comment.
0: Yeah. And you know, it's funny cause I, you know, when I think we hear you talking about it, I, when I think of sort of the, the self promotion component, um, you know you're not somebody who presents at conferences you're not somebody who writes papers and it's not that what you do isn't unique or valuable it's just you seem to be more like focused and refined on doing the thing that you're doing and, and right. that's just not that's just not part of your process. And I guess I rather than being like value judging about like whether one thing is better than the other. I think that some people's value, you know, process way of getting deeper into something is to try to go and present it at a conference and then right. get that feedback. And that's part of their revision cycle. Um I like to go to conferences right. and present, particularly when people pay me to do it. So that's always... Uh, right. Well, yeah. <laughs> I love it
1: when my colleagues go to conferences and bring back really cool stuff. <laughs> uh, so I am I'm 100% in favor of people having that be their path. Um, mm. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it is interesting now. I think that I'm sort of invested in in this project, which which is 100% authentic. And I, I think that that's the thing for me is like when I look at what other teachers are doing, you know, I think that things that really work for other teachers is when it's authentic. And I think that, that sometimes teachers might try to create things because they feel like they're supposed to or do things because they feel like they're supposed to, almost like resume building. And that doesn't sound like a positive thing, so I don't mean it in a negative way. But when it's authentic, I think is when the kids can really benefit from that. And I just didn't have anything, you know, well, I don't want to say anything else that's authentic, but for me, like, this is my project that makes me get really energized and that I also know so well, um, it's definitely, you know, my background knowledge and I have the experience, um, you know, doing that, that I can bring this to the classroom in an authentic way, you um, and I, I think from here, this could be a jumping off point. Like, yeah. could I, you know, this sort of is my goal to do some research with this. And, you know, I do have some contacts that I'm working with that, um, you know, I would love for the kids to have the opportunity to kind of um, write, you know, work on writing a paper, even if it wasn't ever published or anything, just the sort of process of going through that and coming up with something original. And one of the things that that I'm working on with the Exercise Science Club is the fact that we really don't have data out there for high school aged kids with VO2 max and max heart rate. So we're creating a database where VO2 max testing as many kids as possible. I think we did 45 kids this year, which in the pilot year, where we kind of didn't really know what we were doing, I think that's pretty good. and the database I'm building is you know, by sex and sport, if they do a sport, age, um, and then um, we can try to use that database to create some normative values for some of these, these things like VO2, VO2 max, max heart rate, which can be used for athletes in their sports or can be used by PE. Um, you know, so that we can really know this is the kid's true max heart rate. So what is their target heart rate zone? Well, now we can actually calculate that based on true data, not on some random equation that doesn't really have any basis in, in, um, you know, science. I mean, that 220 minus your age is sort of the the equation that, that we're using, but it, it's so not even close to being an accurate prediction. So this way we can actually have some, some real numbers to, to use. Um, and there isn't anything out there that's published. So if we get a big enough database, this might be something that we might be able to uh, do something with.
0: Yeah. And the other thing that's
1: listening, take my idea though.
0: (laughs) The, uh, (laughs) Yeah, I don't think anybody's got the lab to run it, so. Um, okay, just
1: saying, in the high school, you I know, think, high school I, level.
0: I'm trying to think of who listens to the show. Okay, so with the specific thing is uh, is uh, Chris Baker, um, who may who may be listening in Pennsylvania, don't build a lab and do this. Um, that would be the, <laughs> that's the only person yeah. who I could think of it. Okay. We know okay. where he is. He's in Pennsylvania, so. um <laughs> So the uh, the other thing that I was going to bring up, and you brought up so many other ideas, so I want to throw one other quick thing in there, um, which is related to this. And, you know, as the kids were doing their CERs, um, you know, they tried different things. And some of the things that they would say would be like, well, I went out and I did this research and it said that, you know, like, if we drink caffeine, it's going to do, you know, X to our heart rate. And so we followed the guidelines and we drank it, but we didn't see a raise in heart rate. And I was like, well, what and I, so I asked them the question, it's like, well, who's rate were they measuring like what was the cohort that that number come from? and they had like no idea and i was like right. so is it possible <laughs> so, like, what's cohort? yeah well you know but like i didn't use the word cohort with them but oh maybe <laughs> maybe i did and then i explained it but the idea being <laughs> that you know like was this a group of you know like college students that were in their early 20s or was this something i mean most likely they were grad students because that's who all experiments are done on right. so like you know. Is there a difference between a 16-year-old and a 15, or a 15-year-old and a, you know, a 22-year-old? And how big was their sample that they extracted this out? It brought up a really a lot of an interesting thing about evaluating, like, I found this number on the internet that said this is going to happen, and is that based in science? And so there were, there were some really interesting sort of nuanced discussions around, you know, the idea of making a claim. You know, and then finding some research, and then what happens when your data doesn't match that? What does it mean? Does it mean that I did well, something means wrong? Well, your hypothesis is wrong, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's you know, I, or <laughs> I no, no. Like the kids. No,
1: proved. your hypothesis is
0: not right or wrong. Yeah, proved, proved. So, um, <laughs> they, yeah, yeah. So it was a it was a really interesting. I think that's another sort of nice nuanced thing about collecting this this deep data right. year in year out. That'll be great. But, um, you know, you downplayed, you know, like almost like all of the other teaching at the expense of this human performance lab. But the truth is, I know you pretty well. And I know you've been doing a lot of other things, uh, particularly over the last few years. And I know one of your other shifts has really been away from sort of uh, teacher-centered instruction. You know, we teach in a very traditional high school where you stand in front of the board and you lecture a lot. At least that was the history that both of us walked into. And I think, you know, I can say fairly comfortably for the first, you know, 10 years where I was at A.B., that was the normative way that right. classes were run in our you know rapid forty seven minute classes, um, where you just you could stand up and talk. Um, and I know that you've been doing a lot of things to move away from that. So I'm cu- curious, what are some of the strategies that you've um, been using to to make classes go a little more student centered?
1: Yeah, and I think that's a really great question. I know that you and I have had some some conversations about this um and i I think for me sort of where i am right now in that transition is still very much in the questioning phase like i know what i want it to look like and i kind of know where i am and it's a matter of trying to get from point a to point b and so um i think one of the things that's most important when you sort of move away from teacher directed learning is that you know, engaging students to take some ownership over their learning, um, and in order to do that, they need to be in an environment that they feel safe to take risks. Um, I think, like you mentioned, our the culture of our school as being somewhat traditional. Um, you know, kids are sort of programmed somehow, and I don't know by whom or when or how, but when we get them, they're pretty programmed. They know how to do school, most of them, and they do it generally very well, and um, they're sort of, to you know, tell me what it is I'm supposed to know. I will know it, and then I will write it down in a, some format that you want, and then I will get a good grade. And and you know that's is not necessarily learning, I don't think. Um, and so getting kids to feel comfortable with frustration that comes with not knowing the correct answer right away, with not being told to do this, this, and this, uh, but rather saying, you know, think, um, come up with your own questions try to come up with some ways to problem solve your own questions. And so that's kind of where I am right now is trying to create, um, you know, starting at the beginning of the year, creating a classroom environment where kids feel safe, where they know that I'm not looking for the right answer, but rather I'm, I'm, I'm looking for them to engage in the process. And I, and I tell them you will get to the answers eventually, but it's not going to be me telling you. And I think, um, when I can create that environment, then that's sort of where I don't know the magic happens. That's mm-hmm. where the kids are able to um, dive in and engage in process and kind of dig deep uh, and and you know come up with their own solutions. And I feel like those are the skills that are more important than the content that they're learning in class.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's... I guess that's a I don't know. <laughs> no. I, I completely hear what you're saying. Um, the 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 concept of and you know as I was hearing you talk I'm thinking you know I'm nodding my head here which comes across wonderfully in a podcast um, me nodding my right, head exactly um, but the 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 language that sort of came it came up in my head was the the we you know the, the things like you know we're going to do this we're working on this we're all learning and not the we of you as a group right. of students but like we are a group of people in a room. And we're working on something and we're starting in point A and we're going to point B. And yes. yeah, we've got some some goals here and we've got a trajectory and we're going to do the best we can. Um, and that that's sort of the process. But I think that when you I, sort of one of the downsides a little bit to the the structure, I think, that we used to teach in, not to say that we've completely gotten away from it. But I think we did set things up in an extremely linear way. Oh, yeah. to say that we were starting at point A and we're going to go to point B and we're going to do these six steps and these are the right six steps to go from where we are to where we're going. When in reality, I, I, I don't know that, you know, maybe we maybe I na- naively assumed that that was actually what we were doing is the right steps, but I always had a degree <laughs> of uncertainty about how we got from the beginning to the end. And right. I think, you know, communicating the, the the broad path and understanding that you don't have to stay on the narrow path But as we go from here to there, there's going to be a lot of different ways to get from where we're starting to where we're going to get to. And it doesn't always go smoothly for everybody. And it's okay. And we're in it together. And we're all going to get there together. You know, um, right. That's sort of common language.
1: I think that, you know, what's really interesting for me, you know, I, I teach the sophomores in biology, and then I teach the juniors and seniors in anatomy and physiology. And just that age difference, you know, like my juniors and seniors are so much more comfortable in that sort of mode of uncertainty and that, all right, I'm going to give you some background knowledge. I'm going to ask you to do some additional research for background knowledge. Can you hear, can you hear my dog now?
0: That's your dog now. Yeah.
1: That's my dog. Um, And then I'm going to say, all right, develop your questions. You know, here's some equipment here. Here's the baseline have at it and and they are really comfortable with that um you know my sophomores kind of look at you like you know deer in headlights what are you asking me to do you're not telling me what i'm supposed to do you're asking me to do this and kind of think and be confused and be frustrated and so i try to really support that process and let them know that i expect them to be confused and frustrated that that's part of the process that initially You have to work through those confusions. You have to process, question, come back to it, say, okay, this is where we want to go. That didn't work. Um, And remind them that that's how science works, that Mm -hmm. nobody comes up with any answers their first try. Like that's very rare. Mm -hmm. Um, And if it does happen, it's usually through luck. Mm -hmm. So, um, (laughs) you know, there's some examples of that. And I think, you know, just getting the, The kids to be really comfortable in that space frees them up to um, do some really great things and when I see that happening I'm like yes this is what I want and sometimes I feel like we get there by luck and then I have to go what did I just do to create that (laughs) and um so I think that's where I am you know you're you know you asked me like what strategies am I using like, I really can't say definitively I'm using this strategy out of this book or anything. I think I tend to move just through this very intuitively. Uh, I think one of my strengths is my relationships with the kids. And so I can tell pretty intuitively whether we're in the right direction or, or we're not. Um, and then I just make make changes in that way, you know. Um, I think this whole process of these last few years of you know, um, getting those achieve grant and then doing the, the, the work with the lab and f- basically being forced to reflect in a different way is really opening my eyes to, um, some other ways of, of meeting those goals. Even just having this conversation right now, I think is creating that reflective space for me. And I can walk away from this and go, yeah, what are my strategies? You know, I think it's such a great question to ask.
0: All right. So you've opened now the door. You've done this reflection, oh. and so now the upcoming years. What what are what are you looking forward to? What are what you? What has your reflection to this point led you to for the the next couple of years?
1: Yeah. So I mean, obviously, the the follow up there is just um, I really want to hone hone the craft. I really want to um, create create a space in my classroom where it can be primarily student driven um, where the teacher is more the guide rather than the person doing the teaching if that makes sense Um, and I think that for me you know if I think about well how do I you know how do I see that happening I think that um, you know I know you and I've had a lot of conversations about content but I do want to continue using opportunity to ask questions and build skills as a way to get at some of that content. So um, I sort of think like in the past, we sort of had these learning objectives that were all content-based. And now I think we're starting to move away from that. And we're asking what skills do we want the kids to have? How can we create situations in the classroom to let them practice those skills and master those skills? Mm -hmm. So, um, and mastery learning is something that I've spent quite a bit of time on this year doing. Just due to some circumstances um, at our school in the fall, we had to be pretty creative about how we um, assessed kids. And um, I found that doing some mastery learning um, was a really great way to give kids the opportunity to come back to things that maybe they didn't have the opportunity to learn the first time. And I, I actually really love it. So I'm doing more and more of that. Um, and I would love the opportunity to be able to get every kid to sort of that mastery level before moving on to something new. Um, and I found just recently working with my sophomores that letting the kids do some mastery learning in groups. Um, I know you and I talked about that too. You, you recently did um, a lab practicum, I think, kind of in that way with some good success, right? I think yeah. you said things went pretty well. Yeah. Um, and so those are some the models that I wanna you know, use in my classroom. Um, to get the kids to be able to really um, master skills that will be useful for them moving forward.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think you know, it, it's funny. I think we're moving. We've got a lot in our building. We have so many science teachers, particularly so many biology teachers. And we have so little common time, but like we have all of these little tiny threads of conversations that are all going sort of in the same direction. Uh, <laughs> it'll be interesting to see if we ever have the opportunity to sit down. And, you know, I've been trying to get us to sit down a little bit more and have some of those conversations because you hear the same things from lots and lots of people. Um right, these same these same goals, these same practices. And we have these like little side conversations. Oh, I tried this and it was good. But um mm-hmm. yeah, it's I think it's gonna it's gonna be a, a slow process, but as long as we're all sort of positive and you know have the idea that we're going in that mm-hmm. right direction, I think some really good things are in front of us.
1: <laughs> right. And I think it's really encouraging when we do we have a pretty big department but when we have the opportunity to touch base with people and, you know, people are echoing the same ideas and it it's that is something I think that's really encouraging and is exciting because um, I think collectively we can do a lot of really great things if we're if we are on the same page with that.
0: Yeah. All right. So um, I think you're I don't can't tell if you're in your squannies gear. Are you in your. <laughs> I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you're, so uh, so you're in your uh, she's. Carrie's wearing the running club shirt. I am not. I am wearing... I don't know if you could see my shirt. I am wearing my... Um, no, I can't. I am wearing my bright orange WAPAC. Um, see the top oh, okay, my, yep. <laughs> which is a trail run put on by a running club. So not that I know what the answer is, but uh, so Carrie, when uh, you're not uh, teaching, what do you like <laughs> to do?
1: <laughs> well, I, I have this running club <laughs> that I'm the president of. Um, <laughs> so I spend some time with that. Um, you know, I, I used to do a lot of horseback riding. Now I do uh, a small amount of that. um, That takes up a lot less time. Um, uh, We recently adopted our dog um, and she's turned into a fabulous running partner. So I get on trails with her quite a bit. Um, And I spend time with my family. My husband and I have a, um, have a son, he's 11 and he just started trail running too. So the other day, the whole family, we went out with the dog for a trail run. Um, We last year, Uh, my family decided that we were going to start camping. (laughs) And our first trip that we did, um, having spent only two nights in a tent in our backyard to make sure that we could, we embarked upon a five-week cross-country camping trip. Um, And we did 13 national parks in five weeks. And we stayed in a tent. I think we calculated something like 94% of the nights or something like Mm -hmm. that. so that was really fun. Uh, we loved it. It was just an amazing experience. And so we're planning a much smaller trip this summer um, up to PEI uh, Nova Scotia. So we're going to we're gonna do that this summer too. But yeah, pretty much anything that gets me outside um, makes me happy. I do not like to be inside.
0: <laughs> All so that's right. what I do
1: with my, my free
0: time. All right, so, and napping. Yeah, and napping. We I was going <laughs> to say, well, you skipped the napping. I um. <laughs> you know, I love that so um uh before we get to the picks of the episode do you have any questions for me
1: okay so i have this great question <laughs> um it's not when did you start your podcast and okay. why uh, I, i'm good. not going to talk about that yeah. <laughs> um so i've been trying to figure out how i want to formulate this question for you because um it, i think it's going to be a little bit hard to, to formulate. So I'm going to see if I can, if I can ask this question and for you to understand. So I know that you have quite an extensive background as a mentor teacher,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: right? Um, and one of the things that I've sort of been thinking about over the last few years, as I've moved into now, I really am at the halfway point in my career, um, you know, moved into that more experienced teacher category. Um, And looking at uh, collaboration, and I know that we're, you know, getting new staff coming into our department and, um, you know, that idea of collaboration between experienced teachers and inexperienced teachers and, you know, the pathway that each teacher goes through. As you sort of move through the phases of experience from that first few years of just making it through to getting to the point where you can really step back, like we've been talking about, and reflect on your craft. And um, I find that sometimes there's some tension with the experienced teachers and inexperienced teachers with you know, collaboration and how to work together and how, how each teacher can sort of continue on their path in a way that's right for them. And so I guess my question is, what is your experience, if any, with mentoring new teachers and their experiences with experienced teachers. And part of it for me too, is I think back to when we first started and yes, things were very different, but I think, wow, like I really didn't do a great job of respecting the experienced teachers' ideas of things because we were coming right out of school. We know everything. We've just been taught how to do it. And and so now that I'm moving into that experienced teacher zone, Mm You know how are those new teachers going to view me and my ideas and like how can we um, maintain and develop and maintain relationships and collaboration even if you're at very different points in your career does that make sense
0: yeah it does and i i i'm gonna i'm gonna sidestep it a little bit because i don't know that i have a single answer um but i what i will tell you i can tell you from my um when i've done it poorly uh when i've had bad collaborations (laughs) Um, and, and I think sort of speaking to, you know, maybe some of the tensions when we were new and, and some of that, um, in there, I think that one of the big things that has to happen with any collaboration is you have to have two people who establish a relationship and develop a little bit of trust. And I think that one of our, our failings is that at times we haven't really spent any time or invested any energy in that component of the relationship we say you're right. the experienced teacher you are the inexperienced teacher um, you two are gonna work together go and then the ground rules need to be sort of established by those individuals and it may be that the experienced teacher is very open um, really you know takes some time and talks and asks a lot of questions and nurtures the new teacher and really develops relationship or it could be that the experienced teacher says, okay, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to do step one, then step two, then step three. Follow me. This is the way we go. I've got you. Take, I'm going to take care of you. And I think the the second model, which is more or less the way we sort of have done things in our school, um, right. doesn't provide the space for the newer teacher to have a voice. And it will it, it builds an inherent tension. And there are some new teachers who are totally on board with that. And their their personality fits really nicely. But I think that the fact is both people, the new teacher and the experienced teacher, have to sit down and have a desire to have an exchange of ideas and a building of trust. And I think once that the relationship is built, then the nature of that relationship can take shape. Um, because I think that if you don't have a relationship, you can't really be honest about expectations from both sides.
1: Right. You know, it's interesting, too, because I think about like when I've worked with teachers that you know, are maybe year four or five in their career, once I get through those first few years of, okay, I, I, have made it. And they really start to then ask good questions. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes I, and th- this, you know, and this is where I think it is a weakness of mine as I think, well, I've already asked those questions and I've already come to my answer. So I just want to go do my thing. Um, you know, and how, how do experienced teachers still be able to support and encourage the, you know, the, teachers in that phase of their career and have the patience to let them go through those same types of reflection and, and questioning, you know? So I think it's just really an interesting juxtaposition when you have people coming in to a career, doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. Like I go into the classroom, I do the same thing as in essence, I'm going in and I'm teaching something and I've been here for this, you know, 18 years and here's my lesson and the content in the lesson is the same as someone coming in and doing it for their first year, you know? And so I think that's just a really unique thing that, that may not happen in many careers.
0: Yeah. I think also, I think now, and I I would transition between now and say, you know, early in the clear, in the career, I think, you know, you get to this point where I think most I, I speak for myself and I know several of our colleagues, we have a good degree of humility about what we do. I don't think we put on false airs about how good we are and I'm not personally very guarded about the quality of what I put out there. Um, you know what I mean? Like I think there's a lot of stuff I do that's good, but I could tell you tons of things that I don't do that's well. And I think that's a really good point for me to open up conversations with new teachers about saying, all right, we're walking into this. Um, but even with that said, I don't know that I've always, um, I've always framed the conversations the right way. I haven't asked for input. I haven't built the relationship. Um, I haven't started with building the relationship and I think the way, way you talk with kids, you start by building the relationship and then let everything else follow. I think similarly, right. if you want to have a good quality relationship with a colleague, you have to start with the relationship first. You yep. can't let content drive the relationship. You have to have the relationship drive the work that you do. Um, Yeah,
1: that's a good way to put that.
0: And so I think I think for me that's that's some of the lessons that I have been learning. Um, I don't know that I necessarily practice what I have just preached, um, (laughs) but it is it is something that I have become more aware of. I think in the last year or two. Yeah, interesting. So so, all right, so on to the picks of the episode. So Carrie, what are your picks of the episode?
1: What I I read something a couple of days ago on NPR that um, I don't have the article name right in front of me because I'm video chatting with you. <laughs> and so I don't know how you can pick on my use of technology, but I don't know how to make is, two screens show up at once. So. Is it in uh, public
0: understanding of science, alternative facts are the norm?
1: That one. Thank yes. you. And I think it's A- Andrew, Schlu- Schlu- uh, what's his name?
0: Oh, I got to open it back up. Uh, Andrew, <laughs> Andrew, uh, I would say uh, Stulman. Shulman Schulman
1: um, wrote this book, um, and so it's his commentary. And I, and I, you know, I read a lot of things. So when you ask me to pick one, mm-hmm. um, that's a little challenging. Um, and this is actually not the first article that I chose for for this. So this <laughs> is the second one. Um, but I just think it's really interesting because, uh, you know, his commentary is a little bit about what he talks about in his book. Is that um, for some reason, with science, that m- people tend to have a high degree of buy-in to alternative facts and science. Even when presented with copious uh, empirical data, they will still hold to their beliefs. And I think not to turn this into a political podcast episode, but um, you know, the political climate currently in, in our country, I think, is really highlighting, this exact thing and it was just a really interesting commentary and now i want to go read the book Mm -hmm. um but you know one of the things that came out in the article that i thought was really interesting was you know there were some polls done of just people and their thoughts and you know percentage of people that feel that um that genetically modified food should be labeled um and the number of people that feel that um climate change isn't real, right? And then he also asked, well, how many people feel that food should have labels if they have DNA in them? And the percentage of people that thought that food should be labeled as GMOs was around 82%. And the percentage for people that also felt that food should be labeled if they have DNA in them is also 80%. So his point being that if people don't know that your food comes from things like plants and animals that have DNA, then how valid are their opinions about things like GMOs? And it was just a really interesting um, point that that I thought, yeah, you know, and I think it it really relates obviously to what we do when we teach science because we sort of, especially biology, we have to be sensitive to people's ideas about evolution. And, um, you know, um, people come from, kids are going to come from families that have certain political leanings. And so they might have different ideas about climate change and, you know, how to get kids to think openly about science and data in school when they might be hearing different messages at home. And I think you have to really be careful and, you know, to walk that line very carefully so you don't just turn kids off, you know? So I think yeah. that that, that was an interesting read and I'm, I'm looking forward to reading his book.
0: It's very cool. Uh, my pick of the episode is uh, um, I have picked a book, uh, Why Stu- uh, Don't Students Like School? A Cognitive Scientist Answers Questions About How the Minds Work and What It Means in the Classroom. And uh, I posted both the article and the book there. This is not a current book, not like your um, science-blind book. Um, it's, uh, it's a much older, but this is something I audiobooked very recently, and it ties in a lot to what you were talking about in terms of like sort of the mental process of kids and how they work through um, how they learn, basically, the difference between long-term memory and working memory and the environment and how all of those factors come into play. Um, I hated the title of the book, uh, (laughs) but but I I loved the nine cognitive science uh, takes they had on learning. So I definitely would recommend checking that one out, especially as we get into summer reading mode. Right. Cool. Hello. All right. So, Carrie, thank you so much for joining me. Let me give you my uh, credits. Uh, music on this and every episode is d- done by uh, ex-magicians and Jake Jenkins. You can get this podcast on Apple Podcasts, uh, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any place podcasts are found. You can get show notes on lifeoftheschool.org. And you can also follow me on... Uh, at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. Uh, Carrie is not yet on Twitter, but we're gonna work on that. Um, so we'll we'll get her social media up there and have her talking about anatomy and physiology. So thanks again for joining me, and I will talk to everybody soon.